to John chapter 3 as we continue our study in the book of John, John 3. We're at verse 22, halfway through the chapter. I invite you to open the scriptures and to keep them open as we hear the word proclaimed, if it's at all helpful for you to see the text before you. In the first half of the chapter, John spoke with Nicodemus, and now we return to John the baptizer and his testimony. It was significant in chapter 1, you recall, as he pointed to the Lamb of God and sent his disciples after Jesus. But John still apparently has many disciples who are with him. And so we read at John 3, verse 22, this word of the Lord. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from a heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son. And has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. God's word. We turn our hearts in prayer to ask for God's blessing. Father in heaven, how privileged we are to possess the inscripturated revelation from heaven. And yet, O Lord, it is no help to us unless we also have the Spirit of Christ from heaven. And so we pray that he would govern the preaching of the word, declaring to us our Lord Jesus, and that he would give us hearts that are able to see and believe and be strengthened in him. We pray he'd visit us on this Lord's Day so that our Lord Jesus would have all the glory among his people. In the name of Christ we pray it. Amen. The congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come this morning to the last testimony of John, John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. He wasn't a Baptist in terms of denominations, you know that. There's no such thing. 
But John, who figured prominently in the opening of this gospel account, written by a different John, John the Apostle, John has been bearing witness of the Christ, and now we come to his, his last testimony. And in this testimony, he suggests to us a wedding. A wedding. Weddings have, throughout the history of God's people, been joyous occasions, haven't they? Since the first wedding, when God brought the woman to the man. Weddings are a, a delightful thing. I don't know if you boys and girls have ever been to a wedding. You know, lots of times it's just adults at weddings. But I hope you've been to a wedding, and if not, you should... You should ask your mom and dad this afternoon, what goes on at a Christian wedding? Have them tell you how it is that, that a bride enters the back of a church dressed in, in her beautiful white wedding gown, escorted by her father, brought down the aisle to the front where a man awaits the groom who will receive her as his bride, and they will together make vows before the Lord to be faithful to one another until death, to be partners for the kingdom. And weddings are a joyous occasion. I know for ministers, I, I love officiating at weddings. There's that, there's that excitement, right? The couple has this, this glorious sense that we've been gifted of God. How sweet is this providence that's brought us together. And how much anticipation there is of the future that we get to serve each other together. We don't have to say goodbye at night, but we get to be together always. Well, weddings can have difficulties, though, can't they? In my experience, there have only been little difficulties, thankfully. I haven't seen anything too traumatic. Sometimes somebody messes up something or forgets where to walk or walks in on the wrong song, that kind of thing. I don't know what the worst wedding difficulty uh, you've ever seen is, but John suggests to us a wedding difficulty that would be plainly horrible, absolutely shameful. It would be It would be, if it happened today, perhaps insurmountable. John suggests the image that that comes to mind is of a a best man of the wedding party in the the days leading up to the wedding and perhaps on the the wedding rehearsal night, maybe even on the wedding day, is is making advances towards the bride. And maybe she's just flattered at first. But as his overtures continue, she begins to wonder if, Maybe I would rather be married to the best man and not to the groom. And she's unable then to commit herself to the groom. John the Baptist is a forerunner to Christ, a true friend who doesn't do that kind of thing. He doesn't make overtures to the bride of Jesus and draw her attention to himself, but he stands to point all eyes to the bridegroom, to the Lord Jesus, who comes for his people. Jesus Christ has true friends given to him by the Father. John the Baptist is one of those. And so the text is teaching us that our eyes should be drawn to Jesus and to none other. Nothing should come between us and Christ. Nothing should stand between us. Nobody, no thing between us and our Savior. And the text reminds us this morning that we should never want to be in that position of inserting ourselves between the affection of Christ's people, and the Savior, drawing their attention to ourselves instead of to him. This morning, Christ is magnified in the testimony of John, as John proves to be a true friend of the groom, because he does three things. Notice, number one, he recognizes Christ's right to the bride. He recognizes Christ has the right to this bride. Secondly, John rejoices in Christ's arrival for the bride. That now at last, at the end of history here, the Messiah has come for his people. Christ 
Christ has come for his bride. John rejoices in that. And then finally, John relishes Christ's riches for his bride. John is pleased to say, look, Jesus is everything you need, everything you could ever want. You don't need me, you need Jesus. John relishes Christ's riches for his bride. Well, first of all, he recognizes Christ's right to the bride. As this episode begins in verse 22, we find Jesus in Judea baptizing. Or later on in chapter 4, we discover it's the disciples of Jesus, actually, who, who are doing the baptizing in Jesus' name. But it's interesting that Christ has, has positioned himself in the same region as John has. And, and why does he do that? Why, why should Jesus be in the same region as John baptizing except that Jesus now is drawing everyone from John to himself. John has gathered a community of repentance and received the baptism of John, the baptism of repentance, but now comes the Christ to grab hold and to draw them to himself, rightly so. And yet this doesn't go unnoticed by John's disciples. There's a dispute here with Jews about purification, and whatever that involved or entailed, it it brought to their mind what was going on with Jesus. Maybe the Jews said, hey, don't you know about Jesus baptizing too? He's, he's doing a baptism. Everyone's going to him. In any case, John's disciples are quite distressed at the rising popularity of Jesus and the diminishing popularity of, of John. And, and they come in verse 26 to John and they say to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you've, been, you've testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Well, those words are spoken in envy, it seems. Bitter envy. He's becoming more popular than you. Everybody's going to him. It's kind of sad. It's humbling to read that because we know about our own petty jealousies, don't we? Our own party spirit. We can, of course, desire that what's sometimes called the Reformed faith might grow because we think it's the most biblical expression, right? It gives the most glory to God. But we may never be of a party spirit, right? The disciples are inviting John to join them in dissatisfaction. And why shouldn't John be dissatisfied? Why shouldn't John be jealous? Think of, think of all John has gone through, right? He, 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 he gave up everything. He went out into the wilderness. He wore rough clothing. He, he ate locusts. He, he was alienated from culture. He's suffered the disdain of religious leaders. He's, he's worked so hard, and now everyone's leaving him. Why shouldn't John argue for John's place? But no, John will have none of that. In verse 27, he humbly acknowledges that places are appointed by God. A man can receive only what's been given him from above. I've been given the task of a forerunner to the Christ. That's my rank. That's my place. And John reminds them, I said it, and you heard me. I said I am not the Christ. I've told you that. But I only sent as a herald before him. And then John heightens the correction when he says in verse 29 that he who has the bride is the bridegroom. He who has the bride, boys and girls, the the lady who gets married is called the bride, and the man who's marrying her is called the, we often say groom, but, but it's bridegroom. And John's saying, he who has the bride, the church, is the bridegroom, Jesus. And John here is revealing the absurdity and the profound shame of even suggesting to him that he should compete with Jesus 
for the devotion of Israel. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom, he says. The friend of the bridegroom might be compared to today's best man at modern weddings, though it seems maybe the friend of the bridegroom that day had more responsibilities in organizing or presiding over wedding or ceremony. But John is making the case, isn't he, that that he's not the one who is to gather the bride to himself. His disciples had wondered what right Jesus had to take away influence from John. And John's saying he has every right. He's the bridegroom. When John says this, he, he knows there's a whole Old Testament background, isn't there, of, of language in which God speaks of Israel as his bride or as his wife. And he's devoted to her in exclusive love, and he calls his people to be devoted to him in exclusive love, not to be unfaithful to him. And as we read on in the New Testament, the, the, the clarity grows, right? You come to Ephesians 5, we read that Christ loved the church. In the context of Paul telling husbands how to love their wives, he says, look at this model. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. It's extraordinary. Christ cherishes and nourishes his bride. But he says to her, you are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He delights in her. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. And John has no place between them. The bond is one of exclusive love. And the role of the friend is only to bring them together, to see that all things go well, to, to see that the wedding day is a success, to see that there's joy as they enter into this bond. That's, that's the role of a friend. But the role of the friend is not to stand between them. It would be grotesquely shameful. Would John try to create a place for himself? And yet that's what his disciples are asking him to do. Interesting, that's the temptation we all face, isn't it? It's a peculiar temptation for ministers of the word, right? Who, who might find their identity in being a minister. Well, if you do that, then it's tempting. Want to secure a place for yourself. Your, your very existence, your very worth seems tied to the affections of God's people. But that's not right. It's tempting for an elder, maybe. To want to go on a family visit and hear, you're the greatest elders, you're so faithful. Or for a deacon to hear, you, you're the most compassionate deacons we've ever had. It's actually a temptation for every single member, whatever your place of service is in the church, right? To, to want to have the admiration of the saints for self instead of for Christ. But to do that is to usurp the place of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We don't always realize how shameful it is when we're more worried about what other people think of us and whether we got thanked, more concerned about how others esteemed us than how they esteemed Christ. But one of our Reformed fathers writing his commentary in the 16th century and having seen in the Middle Ages how corrupted was the church, that men were using the church for personal gain wrote these words in our text. For as he who marries a wife does not call and invite his friends to the marriage in order to prostitute the bride to them, or by giving up his own rights to allow them to partake with him of the nuptial bed, but rather that the marriage being honored by them may be rendered more sacred 
So likewise, Christ does not call ministers to the office of teaching in order that by conquering the church they may claim dominion over it, but that he may make use of their faithful labors for associating them with himself. It be a shameful thing. And we should grieve when we find ministries that go under the name of Christ or church that are a little more than cults of personality. The church belongs to Christ. Entirely to him. And love for Christ compels us and to remind ourselves frequently that he who has the bride is the bridegroom. In all of our service, in all of our prayers, in all that we give, to keep saying to ourselves, the church is not mine. Whenever we're serving, whenever we're concerned about what's going on in the church, am I concerned about Jesus? The Apostle Paul would say to the Corinthians, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. I'm jealous for you for Christ's sake, he says. He rebukes, right, the sectarianism among them. They want to identify themselves by this apostle, by that preacher. No, we, we didn't die for you. There's one who is your Lord and Master. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. So the way for us to fight the temptation, to seek ourselves in the church instead of the glory of Christ, is to remind ourselves that nothing should come between me and Christ, not even my ego or pride. That we should labor our hearts to cast out everything that stands in the way of unfettered devotion to Jesus Christ. That he be our all in all. That we find our delight in him. That we find our salvation in him. That we rest in him and rejoice in him. We must see that Christ and his right is honored. But then notice, secondly, that John proves to be a true friend. Not just because he recognizes Christ's right to the bride but because he rejoices that Christ has come. He's arrived now for the bride. Verse 29, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. What particularly John has in mind when he talks about the, the, the voice of the bridegroom here is not... Clear to me, there's been different suggestions made, but, but the idea is, is rather plain. It's the idea that the, the groom is, is speaking. He's arrived or he's speaking with delight over his bride, and that brings pleasure to his friend. John says that's the case. I, I hear his voice. Here he is. The Messiah has appeared for his, for his people, and this brings me joy that he has come at last, and they are all to be transferred to him. They are his. If you've had the privilege of standing up in a wedding, then you know that, that, that the wedding party and boys and girls at a wedding, often the bride and groom are up here and then they have their friends standing with them up front. And those friends are to be happy for them because they're being married. This past week, my college buddy celebrated his anniversary. And a few of us were texting together, talking about what a joyful day that was. But that day when he was married was a special day. It was for most of us. Friends, it was the first wedding that we were involved with, and we had we'd watched our, our friend uh, date this girl and seeing his, his deep love for her, his gentleness, kindness, and so forth. And we knew that she was everything to him. And I had the honor of standing as his best man. And I remember that, that as 
she approached the back doors of the sanctuary opened with, with this woman and her father. And everyone stands, you know, as they do and, and turns to look. And I, and I knew enough to know that the idea is that everyone should be looking and giving honor to the bride who looks radiant as brides do on their wedding day especially. And as every eye was turned that way, I couldn't help myself, though. I turned sideways and looked at my buddy because I had to see the look on his face as she came walking down that aisle. And I was not disappointed. His face beaming with delight that here at last, here at last, bride coming for me, she's going to marry me. See, that's how it goes. That's what John says it is. We, we are to the light that Christ should have us do. We should rejoice in Christ's joy as he sings over his people. We should, be, we should be delirious with delight that Christ, who deserves so much more than us, that he yet takes us to himself, glorifies us with himself, lifts us up to heaven to live with him. My joy is complete, John says. This is the purpose to which I've come. I was the forerunner to prepare the bride for the wedding day. Isaiah 62, 5, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. As John knows that the Christ has come to rejoice over his bride, so John's joy is complete. The disciples of John were irritated. They were bitter with envy. And John says, oh no, you've got it exactly wrong. 180 degrees. We should be rejoicing, rejoicing in the joy of our master. The goal has been achieved. The purpose for which I was sent is fulfilled. I have pointed to him and he has arrived. We serve Christ in a different era than John the Baptist did, of course. We stand on the other side now of Christ's coming and his death and resurrection. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets. We are the the people of, of the New Testament, the New Covenant. But our joy is to be in the Lord. If you can imagine the wedding party, our best man sulking because all the attention's going to the groom. You know, I need some attention. You'd say that's ridiculous. And so it would be. What should a minister's desire be? What what should you pray for for every man who ministers the gospel to you from this pulpit, but that his joy would be in Christ's joy? What should every elder long to hear in a family visit? Not what great elders you are, but you know, you know, we have grown in Christ Jesus tremendously this past year. What should every deacon long to hear when they distribute the gifts of God's people to those in need? Not my, my, what what compassionate men you are, but We are so humbled by the compassion of Jesus Christ for us. We see how much he loves us. Well, where do friends like John the Baptist come from? They come from God, who gives them to his son. He honors his son with such friends. John was pointing disciples away from himself to follow Jesus. And our joy is to be that Christ should be glorified. can extend this beyond office bearers or even beyond our places of formal service on a committee. We can, we can think of all this this morning even in terms of our friendships in the church and our relationships that way. Is it our desire to bind 
someone to ourselves in the church of Christ. That we want to bind their affection to us. That they're always attached to us, always looking out for us. Or are we laboring our relationships with each other to direct eyes to the glories of Jesus? And we can talk about that in terms of our marriages. Is your wife a great wife when she remembers everything you like? Or are you delighted and pleased when you see her being washed by the pure water of the word to be a holy bride for Jesus? And what about children and grandchildren? And we can all become very attached to for our own sakes because they make us feel loved, make us feel important. But what is the purpose of these lives in our lives? Is our goal that they would give all their affection, their attention, that they'd give their hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's what would make our hearts soar. You see, we must be careful not to insert ourselves or claim for ourselves the place that belongs to Jesus. We must give him the glory he's due. We must rejoice in the things that are his joy, that he would have a people for himself. And we'll do that as we find our joy in the Lord ourselves. All those temptations and all those sins I've been mentioning of ministers, elders, deacons, congregation, whereby we try to bind people to ourselves and steal for ourselves their admiration and love, it's all the result of one thing, our own failure to find our joy in the Lord Jesus. Our own failure to, to find our happiness in him. But Christ would call each one of us to himself and to know the joy that none of us in the end are left as the wedding party on the sidelines. But we all together as the people of Christ are the bride of Jesus. And there's coming that day. Revelation 19, John the gospel writer becomes John the Apocalypse writer, Revelation 19, and I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Let us be found ready on the day of Christ's coming. Ready because our hearts were devoted to him. We loved him. We gave him everything. We confessed that that he had claims on us and no one else. What a day of rejoicing that will be when our hearts then are satisfied in Christ Jesus. No king will make us happier. But finally, John proves to be a true friend because he relishes Christ's riches. For his bride. John says, All that's left for me now is to disappear. He must increase, I must decrease. I've come to the front as my role assigned by God. I've proclaimed the Messiah. The Messiah has come. The bride is going to him. Now he must become everything, and I must step into the shadows and disappear. His disciples might say, But John, they need you. You have a role, you have a place, the people need what you have, John. And John says, no. 
in Christ is everything they need. He mentions at least four things. Number one, he's everything they need because he comes from above. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. John's saying, I'm just of the earth. I'm just a creature, but... But God has given to the church his very best. This is the very best match God could make. He's given his own son. His son comes from heaven. His son is above all. Secondly, John points to this treasure, that he speaks the word of God. John says that, verse 32, And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies... And no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. Jesus said earlier in the chapter, remember back in verse 13, he said to Nicodemus that no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And Jesus was saying, Nicodemus, you can't see the kingdom. You can't just climb your way up there. The only way you know the secrets of heaven and the decree of God concerning redemption and how to get to glory is that it's revealed to you from above. The bride has a bridegroom who's not going to fumble around. He doesn't know how to lead his wife. He's not even a, a well-meaning Christian husband who's trying to love his wife but sometimes messes up. The, the one who comes for the bride has come from heaven. He knows all things. He knows the wisdom of God. He knows the path of redemption. He knows of the eternal glories that await the bride. And then the riches in which John relishes are found thirdly in that the Father loves the Son, verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. There's an eternal relationship between the Son of God and the Father, the eternal Father loving the eternal Son from all eternity, spawned of perfect fellowship in the Holy Spirit. Father loves his son. He loves his son as he comes from heaven and takes up our nature. He loves his son as he submits to the baptism of John and testifies that he's come to bear the sins of these people who've been washed in this river. The father says, this is my beloved son. Father loves his son. Father's given everything to his son. Father's given the church to his son. The father's given the world to his son. And if he's your groom, well, then it means everything is yours as well. Romans 8 proclaims that we've become children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. You see, in coming to Christ... Giving up all others, we lose nothing, but we gain the whole world. We gain God. We gain Christ. We gain the Spirit. We gain the church. Joint heirs with Christ. If, if we take on the name of this husband, then everything he has is ours. And we will be glorified to reign with him forever. But finally, John glories in this riches. Verse 36 Everlasting life. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. It's not just life that never ends, which it is, 
but it's life in perfect fellowship with God. It goes on forever. It's the new life. It's life in restored communion with God. The only alternative to this is what follows, that he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That's a horrible thing. To be under God's wrath, to be under his eternal judgment, to face his destruction. Excuse me. The wrath of God abides on those who are outside of Jesus Christ. Why should, why should those who come to Christ escape the wrath of God? Well, it's only because Christ loved the bride and gave his life for her. It's only because this groom has substituted himself in the place of his bride to bear all of her guilt and shame, all of her wrongs, all of her offenses against the Father, and to suffer the full consequence and to obtain for his bride perfect righteousness, yes, a white wedding dress, and to clothe her for her wedding day. It's not that we were a worthy bride. It's not that we're so lovely. It's not that we've done a pretty good job making ourselves look good. We were filthy, wretched, disloyal bride. But God loved us. Christ loved us. And he gave his life for us. The supper this morning testifies that his body was broken and his blood was shed for his bride. His riches for us are Glorious and everlasting. The Lord's Supper is a foretaste of that eternal meal. The marriage supper of the Lamb. And at last, we'll be finished with our struggle against sin. And we will dine with the Lord Jesus. And we will find our complete happiness in Him. Let us be jealous then for His glory. Because it's right to be jealous for Christ. But in being jealous for his glory and giving ourselves to him, we will find our joy too. But he is ours and we are his. May God give us hearts to recognize the wonderful place of Jesus, that the bride belongs to him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your beloved son. We pray for forgiveness for all the ways in which we have robbed the Lord Jesus of his rights which we have inserted ourselves and sought to harness the affections of others for self instead of for him. We pray, Lord, that you would show us the ways in which we've done that and ways in which our own hearts have failed to give him all glory and to find all their joy in him. We pray that you would train us to see in Jesus the riches that you are pleased to give us, that you will give us faith to repent of our sin and to rest in him. We pray, Lord, you help us to see what a glorious bridegroom he is, that he laid down his life for us, that we may have life everlasting. Hear us in his name we pray. Amen.